Hi there, this is Dan Jones and this is my podcast. I'm a researcher, an oceanographer to be more specific, and on this podcast I have conversations with other scientists, other scientists whose work intersects with climate science in some way. And I mean that in a pretty broad sense. I mean, I could talk to oceanographers, I could talk to atmospheric scientists, chemists, geologists. Uh, I could even, really under that broad umbrella, I could talk with uh, uh, folks whose work impacts on policy and things as well. So really, it's meant to be pretty broad. Um, the conversations are pretty long format. They are casual. Uh, they are meant to be kind of conversational. And I totally stole that format from many of the podcasts that I've been listening to over the years. Yeah, so um, the introduction, I'm going to try the rambling style introduction again for a few minutes, maybe about five five to ten minutes or so. So if you don't want to hear me go on and on, to, do feel free to skip ahead. Uh, I'll give you a little a little preview, though. I, I do want, I've decided I'm going to tell the story of the time that Trevor McDougall threatened to castrate me. Uh, so <laughs> if you give me a minute, I'll spell that out for you. Uh, I had a conversation, a great conversation with Andrew Myers. I'm recording this intro just uh, a couple hours after our conversation, so that way everything is still fresh in my mind. Uh, yeah, Andrew and I have worked together at the British Antarctic Survey for many years now. Uh, gosh, four and a half years, so that's that's a huge amount of time. Uh, and I've always liked working with him. Uh, he's a really uh, smart a chill person. He's calm. We talk about this some in the in the interview about how he's another one of those really calm people, uh, and I, I need those kind of people in my in my life. I can be way too high strung and way too anxious about things, so it's really beneficial for me to surround myself with calm people who can uh, absorb some of my anxiety. Uh, <laughs> not that that's their problem. That shouldn't be. You know, I don't want to put that on the people around me, but uh, it just helps if you've got those people who can act as dampers, who can uh, absorb some of one's uh, one's tendency, my tendency to be anxious. Uh, yeah, so Andrew, he's worked, he grew up in Hobart, Australia, went to the University of Tasmania, spent most of his life down there, and uh, a few years ago moved to the UK, moved to uh, somewhat sunny Cambridge. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we have a talk about his transition through, from, uh, Hobart to Bass, his pathway through science and what that's been like for him. He's also led numerous research cruises, so we talk about that. Uh, we talk about writing and creativity and all, all of the usual things that I like to talk about on the podcast. Uh, he also draws, he did the, he does these beautiful, uh, Calvin and Hobbes style cartoons, um, I don't know if he's shared them publicly, to be honest, but uh, I've seen some of them. They're really good. They're really nice. So that's one of his creative outlets, these uh, nice Calvin and Hobbes style drawings. Uh, he also says he was in a barbershop quartet, and uh, I haven't looked that up. I haven't, uh, he says there might be a YouTube video somewhere, so uh, maybe somebody wants to find it and uh, let me know where it is, and uh, that, that should be good, good fun. Uh, yeah, so he's Andrew's great to work with, um, really smart. We also talk about machine learning a bit, uh, although the focus of this podcast isn't typically on 
the science itself. It's fun to talk about some specific science applications like that. So I'm glad we did. That was a good chat. Uh, right. So Trevor McDougall. So Trevor McDougall, if you don't know, he's a somewhat legendary oceanographer who works in Australia. He's uh, one of these uh, big theoretical figures who's made some really nice contributions to the field over the years. He's responsible for the uh, TOS-10 toolbox, which is the thermodynamic equations of seawater. He, uh, he re sometimes refers to himself as the god of thermodynamics. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know if he's referred to himself in that way, but the TOS-10 email uh, that is partly his responsibility, from what I understand, is god at TOS-10. So yeah, he, that's, that's how he... <laughs> It's it's a, it's obviously if you know him it's a joke he's a a good natured person and uh, this is you know meant to be kind of lighthearted yeah so Trevor um, he uh, threatened to castrate me and uh, threatened to castrate all of my co-authors on a paper that we wrote a couple of years ago so let me tell you the the story so in one of the introductory figures of this paper. It was not a results figure. It wasn't a figure. Nothing relied on this figure. So that's kind of good uh, in a way, and you'll see why in just a minute. Uh, I was plotting a quantity uh, that had been projected onto a certain choice of uh, density surface. Uh, I won't go into all the, the gory details here, but basically I had made a choice that Trevor didn't think was correct. I had chosen a certain combination of a stream function, which tells you about circulation and density, uh, that he thought, no, no, you can't do that. That's not physically correct. And hey, he's the he's the guy. He's the he's the. It doesn't have to be a guy, but he's the person. He's the person who knows about. Uh, he's one of the certainly the world experts about what density surfaces should you use when using different stream functions. Um, so the paper came out. And I thought I had done it correctly. We had read the website. We had read the descriptions on his website about how all this stuff works. And yeah, we, th we thought we had done it appropriately. Apparently, we had chosen the wrong density surface stream function combination. And uh, so Trevor sent this email uh, saying, well, we have noticed you have committed the crime of using the wrong density surface stream function combination. And therefore, uh, as... As a result, we will castrate you. We will send Andreas Clocker, uh, his enforcer, Trevor's enforcer, to uh, come castrate you in Cambridge, including all of your co-authors. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was interesting. I didn't really know how to take that. I didn't know Trevor, uh, so I didn't really know <laughs> how to take that. And I went to Andrew, and Andrew... Uh, included me on the kind of spirit of this of this email is like ah okay let me tell you let, let Andrew explained it to me he sorted it out he he put me uh, in the right m mental framework to understand this joke uh, so at least I think it's a joke it, it hasn't happened yet um, I'm gonna live the rest of my life in terror running away from Trevor McDougall finding every any little hiding place I can to stay away from his uh, blades or whatever it is he's he's got lurking in his back pocket. Yeah, I guess it's him him and Andreas. I guess I guess I'm just gonna have to avoid them forever. Um, but anyway, the 
So Trevor did visit Cambridge uh, not too long ago, and I brought it up, and um, well, we had a we had a good laugh over it. He still says he's going to do it. He still says this is going to happen someday. So I guess I'm just waiting. Um, it's just hanging over my head. But uh, anyway, yeah, he's a he's he's smart guy, good guy. But yeah, let me get to the conversation with Andrew as quickly as we can because uh, I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you do as well. Um, there's a lot of good advice in there for students and for people, early career folks like like myself and people who are uh, putting it together and people who are trying to figure out their, their path. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was to give us an opportunity to have those conversations about uh, finding your pathway from your early life into some kind of expression of science, however that however that ends up. But I'm rambling, as I warned you. I don't feel too bad for rambling, because I did tell you. I'm like, I'm going to ramble. This is going to happen. But uh, yeah, okay. So let's go ahead and get into the conversation with Andrew Myers. Let's try it again. <laughs> Andrew Myers. British Antarctic Survey. Really good conversation. Hello. Here we go. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. I'm ready for my <laughs> Audio close-up. This is the, the deal. This is the setup. What are these called? Well, they're called uh, Blue is the brand name, and it's uh, Blue Snowball microphones. So Steph got them for me, basically, um, over Christmas as a way to like enable me and encourage me to like, yeah, go ahead and do it. You know, I'd been talking about doing it for so long that she kind of got these to say like, yeah, just, just, just go ahead, it. go ahead and do it, go ahead and try it. Uh, yeah, so it's been going all right, and I just plug them up to the laptop there, and then you know, sit down with somebody, and I basically starve for conversation, and I, I can't go out to the pub like a normal person, so I just turn it into a work thing. Okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> I might be kidding, maybe. Um, so, what's the general format? How does this work? Is this sort of... Just talk, yeah. Is it edited afterwards, or is it all just a, no. just a rolling conversation? It's all just rolling, yeah. It's just it just goes. It's not edited at all. Okay. It's like this long format thing. I, I basically stole that same kind of format from a lot of other podcasts where we just capture pretty much the whole thing. I mean, obviously, if there's a part that you know either of us feels like actually let's really not put that out there, talk about that, yeah. <laughs> then that's fine. We can cut that out. But that doesn't doesn't usually happen very often. No, okay. uh, I don't know. So I don't know how you how you doing. How's yeah. the morning going? Um, pretty well. I've just managed <laughs> dropped Hugo off at nursery, said said his goodbyes, and tidied up the house and came straight in. Yeah. So I made it in extra early, so before ten o'clock for me. Great. <laughs> nice. I want to acknowledge the weirdness that like so we we work together a lot, and so we've sat in this particular arrangement a lot, <laughs> and talked about science a lot. Yeah. And I, so it's kind of I thought about maybe trying a different venue, but I don't know. This is fine. We'll just. I have to I have to put the idea of thousands and thousands of people sitting in this office with us out of my head. And just thousands. pretend we're here, staring at that whiteboard. <laughs> tens of tens of people. <laughs> Which is suspiciously quite clean of differential equations at the moment. Yeah. So, I I cleaned it yesterday because I kind of felt self conscious about I had a bunch of equations up there, for a long time, and I felt like I would I have an office mate right, and I felt like I'd taken the whole whiteboard over. And that there wasn't any space for my office mate to write anything that she might want to write on there. So I wrote down everything I wanted and then 
you know, kind of erased it. Yeah. I think legacy whiteboards are important. I've got one in my office that is, dates back to about 2014, and it's yeah. still got all the cabin allocations from my fir- the first voyage I led. So I put everyone's names and put them in cabins, and it hasn't moved since. So those, those markings are permanent now. Those they're are like dug into the board. They're burnt into the board. Yeah, they're not going to come out. All the little mar- mar- uh, marker particles are firmly wedged into the, into the board itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. So I did kind of think about that. I'm like, well, we're, we're so used to like sitting in this spot. And don't worry, it's not thousands of people. It's ten, tens of people. <laughs> oh, well, not yet. Yeah. Um, oh, you mean like if it just stays on the internet forever? Yeah, yeah, eventually... people in the back. You know, once you reach world fame, people will be searching through your back catalogue material. Yeah, that's right. Oh, so some person, you know, a few decades from now. That's right, yeah. Will <laughs> Stumble across this. Who was it? Andrew Myers, anyway. What was he really like? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Is, is that bothering you? You think, is it... Is it no, stressing? You know, that's no, right. no, I just needed to settle down into the idea of, oh, this has actually started. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not meant to, like, <clears throat> that's another thing that I kind of stole from that long format um, podcast, that the long format is just, like, it just starts, and it includes all the, you know, people coming in and having this initial kind of shuffling, and that way it's not, like, formal. There's no formal, I talk about this a lot, but there's no formal moment where it, like, starts. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I feel like we're in a meta-podcast now. Met- we're talking about making a podcast that we're currently making. Yeah, I do that a lot. I talk about the thing I'm doing, which is... I don't know if that's helpful or not. But I looked at your profile page, and uh, you put a lot on there, so that was pretty helpful. So thanks for... You made... You know, I don't, I don't like, do a ton of research beforehand, necessarily, but I like to at least have a little glance around to get my thoughts organized a little bit. Yeah, I figured I don't actually have any web presence, so I should probably make sure my bas- my Basque profile page is at least somewhat complete. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're not on. You don't. You're not doing the Twitter thing. And uh, what else is there? I guess there's the. You could have some scientists have like their own web page. Yeah, I, mean, I could have my own web page, but I never really felt the need. Yeah, it would just be another thing to like keep up with and to fuss with. That's know? right. Yeah, yeah. And, and to look bad when it's ten years out of date. And it's still in GeoCities. Yeah, GeoCities. Or it has frames. It has frames from the 90s. Or it has, like, a, you know, your most recent publication is 2007 or something like yeah. that. So, yeah, you can stumble across those. Yeah, so we've, we've talked a lot. And I, I wanted to, you know, acknowledge that just just to get get that idea out there that I think it could be slightly awkward for us to, like, you know, you're, you've told me some of these things before, but there's there's a little bit there's an audience right there's folks who will you know listen to it, so um, so I know you grew up in Hobart, mm-hmm. Australia. What's the I know you had a big family right you had a, you had lots of brothers yeah fairly big and Hobart's one of those places it's at the far end of the earth and <clears throat> at least when I was growing up, people who grew up there often stayed there. Um, it wasn't particularly easy to get to the rest of Australia or the mainland as we called it. So there was a bit of an island mentality. Tasmania is pretty big. Like I think geographically, it's about the size of the Netherlands, but there's only about half a million people there. Yeah. Um, and so it it was at least quite isolated. It was quite expensive to get flights out, mm. um, and getting the ferry was you know a big deal. So anyone who went to the mainland when I was growing up was you know oh you went to the mainland very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You need to go on. I was going to the big city, huh? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was going, going to the, the big like... city, and you got to see real football played by the players that you saw on television. Um, so yeah, Hobart was a fairly isolated place. Um, I think probably a lot of people can sympathize with that, because even though I didn't grow up on an island island, like we were far enough away from anything 
any big cities that you know it was a big deal to drive an hour and a half to Savannah even and or drive a couple hours to Atlanta that was like a wow that was a big a big accomplishment or a big event yeah and it was before the era of these cheap flights where you could like legitimately go just to a place overnight or even for a day yeah. uh, on a plane which just didn't happen when I was growing up yeah so your folks were teachers or are teachers or are they still still doing it uh, or, no they're both know, retired now retired? happily spending my inheritance um <laughs> That's their job. Yeah, so I have to say, growing up, so my mum my didn't work, uh, I was the oldest of four, and my mum didn't work uh, while we were all growing, getting into our school age, um, and my dad was a teacher. Um, but once the my younger sister got into school, then mum uh, sort of took her career right off and, and became a bit of a star in the, you know, in the public teaching space. Uh, it was really heavily, because she had a training in, um, uh, in uh, computer science, which was pretty unusual for a woman, particularly back in, I guess she did her undergraduates in the, in the 70s. Mm. Um, um, so, you know, she learned on punch card computers and that sort of thing. Um, oh, wow. So when she came back and did her teaching degree and then got into teaching space, she became, uh, you know, really uh, motivated to press forward with new educational ideas like using games and programming in, in the classroom, which was pretty new at the time. Um, having two teachers as parents was good I didn't realize it at the time but it meant your family was always home everyone together um for all the holidays and things so we could always go out and do oh, stuff yeah right yeah which is something I'm realizing now that I have a son that I feel bad that the work hours are, uh, well the work holidays certainly don't line up with the school holidays not necessarily right you can take some time off but it doesn't overlap there's, yeah. there's no natural like break or time when okay you're not working for this period or not working in a classroom every day I know you know I, I was a not a high school teacher, but I was a teacher for a while, and I know you do plenty of work over those breaks. It's just a different mode. Yeah. It's just you know prep work or you know it's it's stuff that's more time flexible. You don't you might not have to be like in a building, but you are working sometimes yeah. over those breaks. And as a kid, it meant you could be at home and your parents were at home. They might be working, they might be doing marking or doing lesson prep, but they're they're still home. Yeah. And so that was something that was really nice and sort of was really we had quite a close family. Did they um, were they really supportive of your kind of direction towards towards science or yeah uh, well absolutely um probably a little bit too much i remember being discouraged from i, I wanted to t we had a, a lawnmower which had broken down and was old and i wanted to take it apart <laughs> uh, and i was actively discouraged from doing that because I, they didn't want me to suddenly get, get a love for auto mechanics and mm. uh, end up as a grease monkey <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong no, with that but <laughs> no i mean i couldn't see what the problem was and i still don't but i think they I sort of settled into quite an academic, like in, yeah, quite an academic achiever, I guess, in early high school, and then I sort of stayed there. I think they were quite keen to, to push that. Yeah. Um, I guess because they were teachers, they'd seen they'd seen what can happen to kids um, mm. who either become obsessed with something that maybe isn't a career, or um, or just like drop out to go surfing, uh, and so they obviously sort of latched onto the worst case scenario and said, no, don't pull that lawnmower apart. Um, a similar thing happened with surfing. I, I don't want to make uh, my parents seem like monsters. They were amazing and they were very supportive. But I remember being told that uh, I couldn't go surfing or couldn't uh, couldn't spend all my time learning to surf. 
um, because my mum worked at a school that was near the beach, and she always knew when the when the points were going because half the kids wouldn't turn up in the morning. Oh right. Um, and so I was sort of discouraged from doing that and becoming a surfer bum. So um, she saw that pathway of like if you get sucked up into that. Yeah, into that, that, that lifestyle, and yeah, school falls away, and your grades grades suffer, and you know your life goes down the drain. So it, was, <laughs> it was her fear. Um, but little did I know that you know when I got a real job and was working at CSIRO, the the you know the Australian. Um, um, Commonwealth Institute for... No, I can't even do this anymore. It's okay, yes. somebody will. Common t- uh, Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. <laughs> or uh, as Trevor uh, Dougal likes to call it, Cheap Research in the Rural Outback. No, Cheap... Cheap Research in the Rural Outback? Yes. Cheap. What's the S? Yes. Cheap yeah. Science? Cheap Science in the Rural yeah. Outback. Cheap Science that's in the... Oh, dear. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, when that's, I, was, when I started working there... That's Trevor McDougal. That's not us. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't, we didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all Trevor. Yeah, um, Trevor. yeah, when I started working there, um, I'd find out that people would come in dripping wet at like 11 o'clock in the morning because they'd been out surfing because the points were going. Yeah. And, you know, serious scientists. They do that same thing at Scripps in San Diego. People have, you know, surfboards in their offices and at lunch they'll just go out and surf for a little while. I guess eat a sandwich or something at some point uh, or, or not unless they're... Uh, so yeah, so you, you realize it could be maybe a part of your, a yeah, part of your life. I, I think that, I, yeah, I think I've had i missed my little window of learning how to balance properly on a surfboard. I was too old by that stage. Four brothers or three brothers? No, uh, four four kids. Four kids. Uh, I was the oldest. Two brothers and two sisters. Okay, what are they up to? Um, so my my brother, he is now works. Um, so they're all in Hobart still. Um, my brother worked, well, lived and worked for several years in Melbourne, uh, but eventually came back to the motherland. Um, so he works for uh, the Tasmanian government, uh, basically working as a... Um, he works in GIS, so mapping, uh, and has a lot to do with emergency response. So uh, Tasmania and Australia in general suffers from a lot of bushfires. Um, and so getting emergency teams in the right place, working out where you can let fires burn to encourage them to move away from settlements and to make plans for the future when fires will come through, uh, requires a lot of mapping. Yeah. Uh, and so he works with emergency services so for both mapping and their preparations. And he can do all sorts of other interesting things. I think we had a, a visit from uh, Prince Charles and he had to spend a lot of time mapping out potential sniper points. <laughs> So, yeah, interesting variety. It's a cool job. That's a, yeah, that's the sort of stuff the Secret Service would be very interested in, is some technology that would enable you to kind of do that. So that was one of your brothers, that's right? What, yeah. yeah, that was my, my brother. Your brother. Um, that's right, because it's two, two boys, two, two, girls. two girls. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, so that my eldest sister, uh, she's now a teacher. Uh, actually, at the same high school my mum finished teaching at. Um so, but she, before that, uh, before she became a teacher, she was a, uh, a bush guide. So, um, Tasmania is a beautiful wilderness with lots of mountains and beaches. Yeah. Uh, sort of, you can think of it as like New Zealand light. Um, <laughs> and so walking is a big industry there. Yeah. Uh, and so she was a tour guide, well, a walking guide for, uh, you'd say pretty upmarket walkers. And so she did a lot of carrying and cooking and cleaning and, um, but oh. also living in the bush and taking people through this beautiful space. Yeah, guide, uh, people who didn't mind paying a little, I guess they probably pay a little bit more. For they the, paid, for I'd say they paid a little bit, yeah. Um, What's her subject? What's, what kind of stuff does she teach? Uh, well, she, now she's, uh, well, she's a primary school teacher, so they potentially can do anything. Yeah. Uh, but she does uh, science mostly now. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, I think you said so. You said your mom was doing computer science, and your your dad. What was he? Uh, my dad was, was a primary school teacher. A uh, primary school primary teacher. Also. So yeah, okay. they don't have a lot of 
Well, they have to teach everything, don't they? Yeah. Uh, they don't really have a specialty. He ended up as a, as a principal, actually. They have a, that's a very specific skill set, isn't it? Like being able to teach really young kids. Yeah. It's something like, I mean, like I said, I taught some university. That's a different universe. That's like a whole different world than teaching kids. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. At, at university, you, do, you do not need the skill to actual to get to be able to teach, whereas in high school and primary <laughs> school, you're actually expected to be able to educate people. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, you know, when they're really little, you'd have like... Yeah, lots of emotional management and expectation management and classroom control and um, and you also need to be able to boil everything down into a really simple form that still has some real content in there that still has some real meat to it but that has been distilled to its its essence so it's a really special skill yeah. set and absolutely and having two parents as teachers really like our, our family really had a good appreciation of how important education is to everyone really and how it can really sort of elevate anyone and yeah. the importance of a really solid public school system. Yeah. Um, so my parents are both really strong advocates of that as well because they, they always worked in public schools. Um, and Tasmania had an extremely good public school system. Right. It helps the whole like society, like everywhere where you live. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Why would you not support that? Like it helps your, you know, the, the place where you live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the people uh, around you. And it really, it really meant that anyone can do anything. Um, you weren't trapped in a, in a certain life. Um, and having access to good primary education and affordable university education was something I really benefited from. Yeah. So you went to the University of Tasmania, and that's also... Is that also in Hobart, or is that somewhere else on the, on the uh, It's also in Hobart, yeah. So okay. I growing up in Hobart meant that I was quite attached to the place. I mean, I, mm. I think as... Particularly when I was younger, um, Hobart had a bad reputation for teenagers as not having much to do, which yeah. is completely wrong. It had tons of stuff to do, particularly mm. if you like being outside, but... You know, teenagers, it, you know, it didn't have a huge club scene or anything like that. So the sort of things that teenagers often think they like, uh, it didn't offer a lot of. Um, <laughs> it's funny. They think they like, and for some, some teenagers, you try it out and you go, yeah, that's, that's it. Not, yeah. <laughs> that's, um, <laughs> it's a bunch of sweaty people in a loud room. Yeah. So. <laughs> and it's not, absolutely not the case anymore. Hobart's become a real culture capital. Yeah. Um, so much so that I worry that I may be, if I ever want to go back, it might be completely priced out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you um, can't go home. <laughs> You're yeah. priced out. Although we live in Cambridge, so we can't yeah, can't talk too much about that. about that. Yeah. yeah. It always. Well, I, I guess I'm just a little sad because it always felt like a, a place that didn't. Cha- it was called sort of nicknamed Slobart mm. uh, when I was young, and it was because it didn't change very much. Yeah. And it was always sort of happy in the back of my mind that you know if working elsewhere in the world and the sort of globe-trotting lifestyle that science sometimes encourage, if that ever didn't work out, we could go back to Hobart and it would all be the same. Then, you know. It's not. You can't go home. Maybe not. Yeah, yeah. I've read over the years some. This is a little bit more general than that, but I read, you know, since moving here, since moving to the UK, that repatriation can be really difficult and sometimes harder than expatriation than like leaving country where you grew up. Like coming back to it can actually be harder because of what you mentioned. You know that that place has changed since you've been away. And you yeah. come back, and everything's a little different, and everything nothing quite feels like it's where you remember it to be. That's and, right. Yeah. yeah, and if you and particularly if you come back to the same place and you the same people, those people have moved on, their lives have changed, they have different interests, different friendship groups, and things like that. So, I think you just you know you, it can be a happy little idea in your head, but I think being realistic about it, you know, you can paint it a bit too rosily. Yeah. So it was physics, right? It, uh, oh yeah, an undergrad. The, yeah. yeah, so undergrad. yeah, I guess what I was trying to say there overall was that I wasn't really ready to leave Hobart. Right. I really liked it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people do um, do leave and go to other universities around Australia or overseas, but I was pretty happy just going to the University of Tasmania. Um, 
which also meant I could continue living at home and bumming off my parents. Um, so yeah, I did uh, undergraduate mathematics and physics. So it ended up being a double major, so it just means 50% maths, 50% physics. Yeah. Sorry, excuse me. And in, in Australia, is it more like the UK where you're just studying that subject or do you have, have broad classes as well? You, you know? I mean, you can choose. You, if you want, you can have broad classes and certainly some degrees encourage it. Like, um, I think... If you're doing law, you're encouraged to do several art-style classes, at least in the first year or two. Okay, yeah. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I seem to recall that. Um, but for mathematics and physics, uh, I took that and some computer science classes. Uh, I was, you know, uh, Because I, I was quite academically inclined, I went to the university the year before um, to talk to some of the professors about what might be sensible classes to choose. And I remember one, um, I don't want to say rusted on, but... He was, he'd been there for a while, uh, he worked in the maths department, and he insisted that there was no need at all to do computer science. <laughs> it's a passing fad. Yeah, that's It'll right. Be... <laughs> His coding business is completely unnecessary. Um, so I'm glad I didn't listen to him, and I did several classes in, in learning, how to, learning how to code. What's, yeah, what's our version of that going to be when we're old, old people? Oh. Are we going to go like... There's, you don't have to get the chip in your head. Just, just you don't have to have it implanted. Yeah, just fused with the core mind. Yeah. <laughs> just skip that. It's completely. It's just a passing fad. It's completely unnecessary. Yeah. So that was your undergrad and and your PhD, right? You continued. Yeah, there. that's right. Um, yeah. So so by that stage, actually, during uh, college, which the Tasmanian ver- version of years eleven and twelve, when you're like uh, sixteen, seventeen, I met my current wife, um, and so yeah, she was an engineer. So she was the year ahead of me, but. Uh, we had a couple of classes in university together, and I tended to hang out with the engineers a lot more than the uh, maths and physics guys, mostly because they were a lot more fun. So much more drinking with the engineers. Um, engin- yeah, they knew how to have a good time. Uh, and so I mostly associated with them outside my classes. Um, but how did you do, how did you meet? What was the um, just, just, that was the group you were hanging out with? That was, yeah, so was pretty that much was the group the I was hanging out with. So my high school was all boys, and her high school was all girls. So by the time we got, sort of got put together into this college, which was a different school, um, uh, and it's really nice actually. The colleges there, um, they're not they're like a little university. You don't wear uniforms anymore, which everyone does in high school in Australia. Um, you're encouraged to call your, their teachers by the first name. Attendance is. Still mandatory, but certainly more flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, you're allowed off campus, um, so you're you're treated much more like an adult in a little university. Um, uh, and yeah, and so we both had just encountered the opposite sex for the first time in the last four years, <laughs> uh, and so none of us knew how to talk to each other. But it was also the era of house parties and your first introduction to alcohol and things like that. So it was a really fun time. That's and, how. Yeah, that's that, how. That's how you alcohol, talk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I don't encourage that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's how it worked. Um, yeah, and so yeah, we met there. We we've stayed together ever since. Um, but it also meant that at the end of my undergraduate degree, I really didn't want to um, move away at that point. Right. Um, yeah. Because uh, my wife Alison had just landed a good job. Uh, we wanted an engi- uh, well at a pop and paper mill as a mechatronic engineer or a control systems engineer, uh, and so I wasn't really ready to move on. Um, so I did my honours in Hobart. Uh, and so what I did was look around for what Hobart was particularly good at yeah. in science. Um, so oceanography wasn't yet on the radar, right? It sounds like you were... Um, so at the end of... Under- yeah, so during my undergraduate, I didn't even do a fluid score simply because it wasn't actually offered in the year. It was yeah. offered every second year. Um, so <clears throat> oceanography wasn't really on my radar until I started looking around in my fourth year, which is honours, where you basically take on a project. Um, 
and that at that point you sort of get more entrenched into a into a certain subject mm. uh, and I wanted to yeah so I looked around at what Hobart was good at and I discovered we had some very good uh, radio uh, astrophysicists and particularly radio astronomers mm. uh, and we also were, were host to CSIRO marine and atmospheres uh, and the Australian Antarctic Division and a couple of other smaller institutes which are all focused on marine science. Hobart has a massively high proportion of marine scientists, which yeah. is not something I really realised when growing up, but when I started looking around, that, that was became apparent. Right, it seems normal wherever you grow up, you think, oh, I guess every town has... <laughs> There's a bunch of scientists different... and icebreakers parked in the harbour. That was just yeah. what happened. Imagine the people growing up in Woods Hole, they don't know. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> they don't know. The, the ten people growing up in Woods Hole. Yeah. Yeah. Um... <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's cool. And uh, so you're what? I guess you say you found out. So there were a lot of options, right? Those options started to become apparent that that was something that was going on in Hobart. Yeah, so and, you started and, to. And by university, I realised that I really wanted to be a scientist, um, and I knew to do that I would have to get a PhD. And so, coming out of undergrad, a lot of a lot of people, particularly maths and physics, were looking around for what they might do, and often they become, go off and become accountants or consultants or you know something similarly numeric, but not particularly scientific. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't want to do that, so I knew I had to go on. Mm. Um, and I looked around, and there was a new honors course that had only been offered the year before, and so we were coming into the second year, I think, <clears throat> uh, with. Uh, IASOS, the Institute for Antarctic and Southern Ocean Studies. Mm. I got that acronym. Right. Nice. Um, and that was part of the university, but it was uh, also it had offered teaching, but also had a lot of researchers associated with it. Yeah. Uh, and so I met, I scoured around, and I met my supervisor there, who was Nathan Bendoff, uh, who I've had a, who I also did ended up doing my PhD with, who was a uh, excellent sort of international class oceanographer, uh, very interesting character. Sort of cackled a lot. Um, <laughs> cackled. He had a very distinctive laugh. You could hear him coming. So if you wanted to hide or wanted to catch him, you, you could always have a bit of a heads up. Yeah? What, yeah. what was he like as an advisor? Was he uh, more hands-off or more um, <clears throat> involved? Nathan is really dedicated to his science, uh, not so much on his admin. Okay, yeah. Um, so he could be a little bit scattered um, and sometimes hard to nail down. He's always sort of rushing off to the next meeting, which he was late for. But at the same time, he was late because he gave all the time necessary for science. Yeah. Uh, and so when I managed to find him for meetings, I got as much time as necessary. So I used to just take to bursting into his office and waving around figures. And then we'd just sit down and talk about those figures for sometimes several hours. So that was his priority. He was like, that's, that's priority number one. That's right. Yeah. Priority. Science was priority, priority number one. And I'm pretty sure it still is because when I go back and visit Hobart, I do the same thing. I burst into his office and then we end up talking about stuff until whoever he was supposed to meet next comes looking for him. <laughs> was he the guy who you were telling me about somebody you worked with who had like a, in the morning, like a window where that was science only and that was the only uh, thing? No, no, that was, that, was, that, was, that was Trevor. That's Trevor, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have to say, I think it's a characteristic of scientists that they really love doing science and as they get more senior, they inevitably get more admin, things like grants, um, stuff that, you know, facilitates science and is important, but yeah. isn't really science. And they sort of resent that somewhat and, and make time for science over it. And that uh, that shift is happening to you now a bit, I guess. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> so they really does sneak up on you. And at first you feel quite 
uh, you know, you feel quite proud that someone's asking you to do these sorts of mm. important things like write grants or lead groups, and then you realise that, ah, oh, I'm doing less science. Yeah. <laughs> What's happening? Yeah. Why haven't I written anything yeah. in a while? <laughs> That's it. Because you're, yeah, you're running off to meetings and you're, yeah, it's hard. I guess you have to put up some, some walls and you have to get good at saying no. And yeah, uh, you have to, that's a skill you have to develop somehow. How to say no or how to um, uh, delegate, you know, how to put stuff. And, and also, like, decide what's acceptable standards as well. Because often with science, you're really, you know, science is very rigorous and you want to, and you know you're going to go, uh, your peers will be scrutinizing your work very closely. Yeah, you feel them and, hovering over your yeah, shoulder. Yeah, and you, therefore, you want right. to do the best you possibly can. Also, because you know the idea of science is moving humanity forward in a very broad sense. And, you know, you hopefully, to, uh, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> but you you want to get it right, right? You yeah. Know, this is your contribution to society, and so you want to do a nice job. Admin doesn't necessarily need to be done to the same level. But once you've been doing, once you've got used to that that sort of putting that level of work into your um, whatever is in front of you it can be quite hard to say okay that's probably good enough let's let's move on and, and make some time that way yeah so you get more efficient that's right i forget that the quote that i've heard is something like if you want something done give it to a busy person yeah that's a, right. a busy person has figured out by necessity they've had to figure out how to do things quickly and how to turn over that things quickly that can be turned over quickly. Yeah. Or a lazy person, because they'll find an easier way. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Mm -hmm. That's the basis of like 90% of writing scripts for programming, right? It's like, I don't want to go through and you know manually copy all of these files. I want to write something that's that right. will just do everything for <clears throat> You're me. You're really lining up your laziness. You know? Yeah. Do I want to spend half an hour writing this code, or do I want to spend 20 minutes doing this? boring task which i'll have to do again next week yeah yeah so you did you got to work with trevor mcdougall some right yeah okay yeah so i guess after my phd um <clears throat> i was offered very quickly so I, I spent my phd lasted three years and nine months um so funding is three years and back then you you got more or less an ex automatic extension of six six months uh and then for my last three months i was furiously writing up uh, I was very lucky enough to that one of um, the heads of the group, Richard Coleman, uh, he found some extra cash in his back pocket that hmm. <laughs> allowed me to continue eating for those final three months. Hmm. Um, and I guess this is something that a lot of PhD students fall into. That the last year is really hectic. You spend a lot of time writing and thinking and, and stressing. And so I didn't have a lot of time for considering what was happening after the PhD. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I sort of handed it in and suddenly there was this big void in my life. I'm like, oh, what am I doing? I need to earn some money. How's this going to work? The uh, dog caught its tail. Yeah. And that happened, I know what you mean, that experience of like, oh, now what? <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and very fortuitously, uh, my other supervisor, who was Steve Rintel, yeah. uh, who worked at CSIRO. So Nathan was University of Taz, uh, Steve was CSIRO. There was this nice... All the institutes in Tasmania are very mashed up. They're all separate entities uh, with different funding streams, but the people who sit at the desks often belong to one or both or several of them. Um, so it's, it's a really nice community. Um, so the PhD was shared between those two groups. Um, and at that point, Steve uh, had to... Steve was quite senior at CSIRO, and he actually had to take a temporary acting director role, uh, mm. which meant that he, the science he was doing wasn't going to get done. Yeah. Uh, so I managed to land a very easy quick postdoc that was basically like a necessity thing um, and so I, I think I was very fortunate at that point I, throughout my entire scientific career I feel like I've been very fortunate it's nice when it works out yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah and it's good to I'm trying to do this too it's, it's good you you know you have that sense of gratitude about it and I think it's important to 
keep in mind that you know you need some kind of combination of hard work and the right circumstances you need both of those things to happen that it's not yeah it's, it's not automatic like just because you're working hard doesn't mean the other stuff is going to line up the way you picture it yeah i mean something can work out if you keep going at going at it and going after it but yeah it's a uh, there's there's some luck in there yeah <laughs> totally some, well you know yeah. like aside from actually doing sciences the rest of your life that sort of happens outside of that yes. and i was yeah. really fortunate in that things continually lined up there so my wife was my wife basically supported me being a, a penniless student and continuing well continuing to be a student mm-hmm. um so she was working as an engineer um at, at the same place she got her job at straight out of undergraduate uh, yeah. throughout my entire PhD. And during that time we bought a house. Well, you know, she bought a house and I came <laughs> <She> along. <bought. laughs> um, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, during it, and during the PhD you also, you know, towards the, at the start it's a bit of fun and towards the end it's a very hard graft. I think I was mm. doing 80-hour weeks at the end, which probably meant I wasn't working hard enough at the start. Um, a bit of a grind, the, the writing part. That last the, part, you know. yeah. I think writing is, I've always found writing quite hard. It shouldn't be. Um, mm-hmm. But I always find reasons to make one more plot. And yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that because I like to talk about that with everyone. Like, what, what have you learned about kind of writing and how do you approach it now? What do you what do? You do? Um, I'm increasingly realizing that the... At some point, you have to stop. You just, and it's the same with the PhD. You, you can continue doing your PhD forever, but at some point, you just have to let it die. You mm. take your hands off and say, there's enough stuff here. Uh, I know I could branch out more or less yeah. infinitely, but at some point, you say, that's enough. And That's right. I need to, and I'm increasingly doing the same with, um, with my research. And so I look at the figures or the stuff I'm working with and, and look at the story it's telling. And when the story is basically... You know, at the end of a paragraph or at the end of a few paragraphs, and you think, okay, there's a little coherent idea here. At that point, I'm encouraged to write it up. Hmm. Um, you know, obviously, there's more things that you could ask. You could uh, you could look at it in different ways. You could say, well, this imp- uh, the work that I've just done implies further work. Should I do that? Uh, and I think the answer is often no. I prefer to write shorter papers, and I prefer to read them as well. But coherent, nicely encapsulated ideas. Um, but that's also very hard to do as a PhD student. It's very hard to understand yeah. where, or when you're entering any field. It's hard to know what that idea... You don't have that intuition yet. That's right. You need, yeah. to, you need to have a feel for the space and have, a, have an idea that that idea is interesting, hasn't been done before, contributes to the body of science, um, and is something that other people will actually find interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. that was something that was hard as a student. I didn't really know exactly what a paper should look like properly. I'd read lots, obviously, but mm. I didn't really know how they came up with these novel and interesting ideas. Uh, and what I'm finding now is that once you start the ball rolling with your science, and if you stay in the same field, you basically, all these ideas just spread away from it, and each one yeah. is an encapsulated idea of a paper. And then at some point you realise it's about communicating with people, and the, the longer you kind of stay in science or around science you start to learn about your audience and what they are listening for and like what they will want to see yeah. in a paper absolutely and that just takes time and just being in the in the community so that's like that's one of the hard things about starting out is when you don't you don't know your audience yet mm. <laughs> you don't know who you're writing for exactly like you know conceptually but not on a level of oh this will speak to the community that I'm trying to reach and that will get this will get to them yeah, yeah. or as necessary or you know the community is continually there's a hole in the community's knowledge and we have the skills to address that we should do that yeah um, yeah I mean I, I quite like telling scientific stories I give I, you know 
Although I find writing hard, I find giving talks quite easy and I quite enjoy doing them. And they are, inevitably, in these scientific conferences, little encapsulated 12-minute ideas. In 12 minutes, you don't have a lot of time to communicate a complex scientific idea. Yeah. Um, but you, usually, you get the story across, and it usually has a, you know, a start, reason, uh, motivations, and how you did it, and then conclusions, right? And I find that very easy to do, and I've done it in many, many more topics than I've actually written papers. So I really just need to take those stories and add in that extra bit of rigour that makes it a paper. Yeah. Mm. So what was moving to the British Antarctic Survey, like where we're now sitting? <laughs> um, it was big, right? Um, so it was the first time... So my wife and I travelled quite a lot. We, so during our undergraduate years and also during PhD a bit, uh, we'd done a fair bit of backpacking. We'd backpacked across Europe and we'd backpacked across South America. Um, but still the longest period of time I'd ever spent away from Hobart was three months on an icebreaker. Yeah. Um, so I'd never really moved that away that far away. And so that both of our families were in Hobart, so we were both quite linked with our families. We had our own house, but you know, we still saw everyone very regularly. Um, and so really, uh, it was both of our entire support networks. We just said, okay, let's, let's go. Yeah, um, it's hard. It's but, really hard. But at the same time, it was also time, right? Um, we had been in Hobart for almost 30 years, our entire lives. Um, and we realised uh, through our travelling that there's so much more out in the world, and we knew we wanted to see some of that. Um, and so when the position came up with Bass, I read the read the description and think they do everything exactly. They do exactly the sort of stuff I do, but it's a much too higher level. Like, mm. I can't lead voyages. I've never done that. I can't <laughs> write grants. I hadn't done that. Mm. Um, but I'll put my I'll write it I'll write it down and see what we go because I need practice applying for jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I did my I had to do my interview over Skype. Um, I was in Melbourne in a conference at the time. So I went to my brother's house. Um, he wasn't in, fortunately, and it was like about 9 or 10 p.m. or something, so it was quite late, which yeah. was a really big time difference. Yeah. Uh, and then Skype didn't work, and so I had to do it just talking to a phone sitting on the desk. Um, <laughs> but very fortunately, because Skype wasn't working, it meant they couldn't see me. Um, so I had to give a presentation, so it was sort of like next slide, next slide, and they'd just advance it at the other side of the world. Um, but I had to do a little bio of myself and because they couldn't see me I just put a picture of Brad Pitt on the front and I think that really helped <laughs> uh, so that's me that's the secret so lie, lie on your resume <laughs> uh, yeah. well, you know, I'm kidding I'm kidding of course but you know <laughs> well, it also it's helped fun. because they couldn't see me and it was stinking hot it was a period of really uh, uh, strong bushfire or yeah. really bad bushfires in Melbourne um, like really bad ones but it also meant it was like 40 degrees or something um, so I think I was sitting there in my boxer shorts and I had a beer because it was late and I'd given my talk that day. Yeah. Um, and so I think that made it feel a lot more informal to me and more relaxed. Yeah, yeah you were more relaxed. Yeah. No, and the, and the Brad Pitt thing, I think it's, it's, it's great that it worked because what I mean by worked is like it was funny and I'm sure it sounds like they probably, it was like a, it, it sounds like it went, the joke worked, like it went, it went over well. Yeah, I mean, know, looking like, back now, it could have been completely miscued or depending on uh, who was interviewing me it was Mike Meredith and Emily Chakra uh, both of whom I well who lead our group now uh, who have good senses of humour yeah, um, yeah and it has to be said that like the British mentality and the Australian one are quite similar mm. we're you know like just distant cousins really yeah uh, we're all very well actually close cousins yeah but I guess had it been someone more formal, they might have like, why isn't this person taking this seriously? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you know, I'd like to feel like the rest of the presentation was backed up with some serious science. Yeah. Um, and I'd thought quite hard about the sort of questions that they might ask and what the British Antarctic Survey actually does. 
And I had a pretty good, because I'd done two, two postdocs by that point, so I had quite a good feel for the Southern Ocean, and I'd looked at large-scale circulation problems, and I'd looked at coastal, um, um, coastal convection problems, uh, and I'd been working with some uh, people like Krill, so I was a little bit cross-disciplinary. Um, and it didn't hurt at all that both of my supervisors, uh, Steve Rintoul, um, Nathan Bindoff, and Trevor uh, McDougall, who was my last postdoc supervisor, and, oh, and Bernadette Sloan as well, uh, were all sort of very well known in the international community. Uh, they knew the people I was talking to, they knew Mike and Emily, uh, and so it, it came from a good pedigree, basically. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really important in science, not necessarily the pedigree, but being known to each other, that community, um, because in any scientific field, you know, the more you, more you dig down into it, the smaller and smaller the group is uh, of people who actually understand what you're talking about. Um, and it really is important to communicate with them what your ideas are through meetings and through just emails. Yeah. It was something that was very, it took a long time coming to me to write, just if I had a question about a paper that was written by someone who was a big name in the field, rather than sitting there and wondering what they meant, you can just write to them. You, you know, they are very approachable. They are genuinely, well, at least in my experience, genuinely keen to hear someone who's interested in their work and happy to clarify or assist or in any way, really. Um, yeah, that's right. No, scientists don't get a lot of emails like that they don't yeah. get a lot of emails from people who are interested in their work and want to know more about it and, yeah. but, uh, I mean it was it was sort of intimidating for me because I'd read all these papers and they were you know the big name in the field um, but yeah that is the person and I, it sort of came down to me when I was uh, I was hosting a group of scientists from Japan in Hobart um, and one of the key researchers there Shigeru Aoki who was you know he was a big name in the field <laughs> and so I was sort of tiptoeing around him being friendly and sort of bowing down a bit um, but you know, just being not literally, not literally. Well, I do a bit. Japan, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of balance like, yeah. when, when you work with Japanese people. Um, but you know, I, I was treating him as as you know a revered person in the field, uh, and we were out at a pub in, uh, in sort of the central tourist area in Hobart, and then a bunch of my friends happened to be there. They just came in independently, and they they weren't linked to oceanography at all, so they had no idea who this guy was, and they had a little bit to drink, and they were having so much fun with him. Because he was just another guy, just yeah. a person off the street who was visiting Hobart and they just treated him like anyone else. And I realised that, oh, well, you know, while he's a, a giant or really important in the field, um, he's just any other person. And it's very easy, easy to, well, as a student, it's easy to forget that. And they like that. They appreciate being treated yeah. as regular humans. Uh, this is good because the, one of the questions I've been thinking about lately is, you know, as a community, are we doing enough to try to include people who might not have good geographical access to that community and uh but i like i think the point you're bringing up you know emphasizes that like yeah us as a community we probably could do more we probably should be having that conversation and thinking about how to be more inclusive and how not to just uh you know limit our attention to the you know, folks who come out of a small handful of research groups over the world but then what you're saying is also really valuable that you know, if you want to get involved in, in some aspect of science, uh, at least for our field anyway, you know, speaking for us, you can contact people directly and you can just let them know you're interested. You can put yourself out there. You know, if you can, you can try to do a little bit of, of work either on your own or uh, with, with a mentor somewhere. That, mm -hmm. And uh, luckily, I, you know, you don't have to be in the same physical location to have that kind of mentoring relationship anymore. So I think both are important. Like as a community, we should ask ourselves ask ourselves about that and maybe do more to be more inclusive, but also 
you know, if you're a person outside of the community, you can also do things that will help that will help make that connection. Yeah, and I, I think as a, as a PhD, it can be very easy to spend those three or four years just burrowed into your work and not communicating too much with the outside world, simply because you think, well, you know, at this this stage, I haven't got anything that I feel comfortable with the outside world seeing. I want to make this perfect science. Um, but really, it's much more valuable to send those emails just so those people who will be your future peers and employers know your name, know who you are, and know that you're working in this space, even if they haven't really seen what you're producing. Just a few of the figures that you're working with and the ideas that you're playing with mm. uh, are really valuable um, just to start those conversations yeah. and put your name in their heads. And I think Make yourself familiar. You that's know. it, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so when opportunities do come up or when pieces of work that they're working, or something, some scientific idea that they're toying with lines up with what you're doing, they can say, oh, I know this person. Um, maybe they're interested and they just shoot you the email and things start from there. It always starts from these sort of small, fairly incidental pieces of work. Um, and so I had something like that with uh, Alberto at Southampton. So I was a PhD student yeah. in Hobart. Alberto, is his last name? Naviara Garabata. Nice job. Yeah, I knew what it was, but I wasn't confident about I saying I think I got the accent quite right. <laughs> That's okay. I think we're allowed some leeway. Yeah, Alberto, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I just sent a, I saw some work that he was doing, and fairly unsolicited, I sent uh, him some figures from work that I was doing that was very parallel to sort of to what he was looking at. Um, and he immediately wrote back to me and said, hey, would you like to come over here for two weeks? Oh, nice. And, yeah, and so I basically went to Southampton um, for my first little scientific collaboration and work with Alberto. And uh, although in the end not too much came out of that particular idea, uh, Alberto and I built a little rapport and so he knew about me. And later on when I was coming to the UK, it just made it so much easier to integrate with the community, um, having those links. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've since worked and published together, so... Yeah, so you need to you need to have the, the goods, you know, you need to have some scientific interest and some, some work. Yeah, but I think interest but, is enough. You know, it doesn't yeah. need to be I mean, not that I'm advocating not finishing things, but it doesn't need to be polished to start yeah. these conversations. You need to and often it really benefits from talking to these people who have more experience about your ideas, even if they're not fully formed, they can help you steer them in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, have the goods, make yourself familiar, email people. That's right. And yeah, yeah. imposter syndrome's a big thing. Um but everyone has it, right? Um, in, it's very easy to assume these experts know everything, but they know a lot about a very small amount, and it's very yeah. easy to yeah. stray outside their expertise. Uh, and they're not afraid to say that either. So I think you, you have, yeah, having, having confidence that the work you're doing is as good as anyone else. Hmm. Well, one piece of advice I also got from uh, one of my history professors was uh, he just flat out said, Ride your advisor's coattails. And I'm doing his voice a little bit. It, hopefully he doesn't mind that. Yeah, ride your advisor's coattails. You know, um, and uh, he, uh, he, you need to have the work. And but if you do get connected with somebody who is well known, you know, that's that's something you can draw on. I mean, you do eventually want to be distinct. And but just the fact that you can be a little bit familiar. You know, like oh, by the way, I know this person. I'm connected with this person. That does help. I mean, we are humans we're like social creatures so that's part of how we how we work we yeah. work based on these these networks yeah uh, and, and there's like going to conferences i think i remember my very first international conference uh i knew there was going to be lots of international scientists there and i wanted wanted to you know network with them yeah and i thought the way to do that was basically to to pin them down and blast them with my science which wasn't necessarily what they were interested in <laughs> fire hose yeah um and you have these weird forced well i had these weird forced conversations with people sort of telling them about my um my poster at the time um 
in fields that they are nominally related to. Yeah. And you'd see their eyes sort of glaze over after a couple of minutes. And you think, but what was much more valuable was going out to the pub with my peers, other PhD students, uh, yeah. early postdocs, uh, and I made and having com- relaxed human conversations. Not necessarily. You know, there was a fair bit of walk, uh, sort of shop talk, but there was also talk about all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. And those people have since gone on to be uh, peers in other institutes, and we have these really good re- working relationships. Yeah. Uh, and so just that casual networking, uh, going out to dinner at conferences and things was really valuable too. Yeah. Science is not done in a vacuum. You need to talk to these people. Yeah, you got to hang out. You got to be. That's you it, yeah. be around. Yeah, just yeah, just <laughs> hanging out and passing the time of the day was was really key to building those networks. Not the not the mailing, cornering some poor professor in a, in a, in a like uh, in a corner in the in the uh, poster hall. Yeah. yeah. So what Andrew's saying is, don't corner him and blast him with. Uh, I'm kidding. No, I'm, no, kidding I'm kidding. Do, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but also yeah. go and hang out with your peers. Don't just sort of find the biggest name in the hall and try and you know try and talk to them about your work when it's not necessary. Like if it is related, absolutely go go yeah, and help them. Definitely. Down. Ask their definitely. ideas. Yeah. But if it's just that they're also an oceanographer. You know, maybe that's... Don't feel stressed if you're not talking to the biggest scientists in the room. Talk to your peers. Yeah, we're a small community anyway, so by the time you meet 10 people, you're probably connected to just about everybody else in the, in the that's field. That's right, yeah, some there's only way, one or two yeah. steps between everyone. Yeah, that's right. So you've led a lot of research cruises. I wanted to talk about that a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so do you, do you like that experience of being a PSO? And, I mean, you were a PSO on the, on the one cruise that I was on, and uh, you seem to be enjoying yourself. What, is that... <laughs> Yeah, that, that's that true. A... <laughs> so I, I do like going to sea. Um, it's certainly something that's going to be harder going forward now that I'm a father and, you know, disappearing for months at a time yeah. is not something that's going to be much fun for my family or for me. Like, like you know, missing your kids and missing your family is, is yeah. going to be hard. But um, prior to that, I certainly did enjoy the adventure. I've always really liked the idea of adventure and I always sort of wanted adventures and go, going to Antarctica on a ship thousands of kilometres from the nearest anything is certainly a good adventure. Um, so I did two voyages during my PhD um, and learnt the, the fundamentals of physical oceanography and life aboard ships. Yeah. And the Australian ships are certainly... The way the Australians do it is a bit different from the way the UK does it in that um, the Australians only have one ship, so it has to do everything. It has a much, much bigger geographic area to mm. cover. It has to supply all the bases and do the science. And because you only get one or two of these big marine science voyages, it's not just a small group of people doing one particular project. It's multiple groups doing several different projects, yeah. um, which may or may not overlap, but they, you know, they're at least done in the same geographic region. Yeah. So it's very multidisciplinary, which can be valuable um, for the science coming out, but it can also make lots of operational issues when the biologists really want to do a troll and the physicists want to do a CTD, and you can't have all these things dangling over the side of the ship at once. And, mm. Uh, can lead to raised tempers and things like that. Whereas in the UK ships, in, in my experience, the voyages tend to be much over much shorter geographic areas. Um, the people, therefore, the ship can do more of the voyages, so you can have smaller groups on more targeted science, which is yeah. very, very valuable. Um, yeah, the, also the Australian ships, everyone's in together. Um, so the, the crew and the officers and the scientists are all one big happy family with the usual frictions that come with happy families um, <laughs> whereas in the UK ships it's a sort of a hangover from the um, maritime I guess their merchant marine background or the navy background even Bass was when it was formed was at least quasi-military hmm. um, 
Uh, and so there's this quite strong distinction between the crew and the officers and the scientists, um, which isn't necessarily bad. Um, I mean, the, it means the crew have their the crew have their own space, and they don't necessarily have their bosses leaning over their shoulders when yeah. they're trying to recreate. Um, but it also does feel a bit weird. It does um, feel weird. Yeah, it's, it's not very egalitarian. But. No, but like you said, they they can complain about us, you know, weird scientists if they want to, and that's that's valuable. Yeah, they basically have a space they can. I mean, the um, crew are absolutely allowed in the officers' bar, but officers are not allowed in the crew bar. Right. I guess yeah. that's the other thing. The UK ships are wet, and the Australian mm. ships, um, they used to be. They used to be very similar in the, the way things were run, but uh, they were taken over by P&O, like the cruise company. And oh. they were, so they were, they were owned by, the, the ship was owned by P&O. Oh, really? Yeah. So I didn't was, know uh, that. Yeah. Mm. And, and so it, they wanted to harmonise all their rules. And so they basically said, no, no, alcohol. no alcohol on the ships. Um, and so I was on the very first voyage... My, my first voyage was the first voyage where that rule had been instituted and it was not a it was a resentful ship mm. <laughs> not to each other but to uh, towards the administration I think there was a at one point there was a public forum called and people harangued uh, there was some fairly senior um, members of the executive on board they were being transported back from Antarctica <laughs> and they got harangued for about three hours oh. in a very uh, spirited public forum about this <laughs> um, and the UK ships don't have these rules. They didn't well, think the, about that. They're like, we're going to have to ride with these people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, have to, we have to live with these guys in a very small. So at that point, there was about 70 people, which yeah. is very crowded. We had four people in a cabin. Um, and the cabin's not very big. Yeah. It's maybe you know, two meters by three meters or something. It's, it's small. Not much personal space. No. no. I mean, that was just transit. We weren't trying to do any science at that point. We were just coming home, but it's still a long transit. Could you still, did you have an ability to at least pull a curtain or something and have a tiny little bit of space? Yeah, you had a a bunk's worth of space. Yeah. Yeah, that was, and you could pull the curtain around. Don't sit up. Yeah, you can't. No, you you couldn't sit up. If you're on the top, you couldn't sit up either. You hit the roof. You have a way, a place to lay down, and that's it. That's that's all you have. But, you know, for for a PhD student, it was really exciting. I, you know, I really loved the adventure uh, and spending. That amount of time in a very isolated ship. Um, so the it did have satellite comms, but you got about thirty kilobytes worth of email a day. Yeah. So it was just text, no photos, um, and it didn't. You couldn't do a back and forth conversation. It just got sent off in one one squirt, and then a little bit later in the day, emails came back. Maybe. Hmm. Um, so it really made the ship isolated. A real community. Um, obviously, there's no television or anything. Yeah. Um, and so it was a very unique style of life, which I hadn't encountered before. Um, and there's a lot of camaraderie and people you make very close friendships on those sorts of ships when you're sharing that space for three months um, yeah definitely or even a few weeks it, can can be you can have some chats in the bar with people and get to know them and start to feel familiar and yeah know, absolutely yeah. and I think that was one of the values that the UK ships have and still having you know sensible amounts of alcohol available is that you know, like it or not, that's sort of how a lot of society works. And the alcohol is that social lubricant when it's in your hand. It's now it's relaxed time. Yeah. And it was, it was a way of taking the pressure off after a long shift and just inter- uh, bonding more. It's become a theme of the of this podcast, yeah. <laughs> of this episode. Of, yeah, uh, um, I can, no, no, this is no, what happens fine. when you have Australians in. You no. can just talk about drinking the whole time. <laughs> no, it's useful yeah. in college, you know, for I have a beer right now talk to <laughs> <laughs> on ships you know, in the office after work uh, yeah. during work if conditions are good or bad I guess really good or really yeah, bad really good or really bad yeah. <laughs> uh, drink responsibly no. uh, I, hadn't, I, I, I hadn't noticed but yeah. now you've made me aware of it I think I should see someone <laughs> I'm here to help 
We've got, there's a van right outside actually. We're, <laughs> we're ready to transport you now. To the, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, we, we care about you. Um, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about, and this is, um, this is the segment of the podcast where I talk about how awesome you are and make you feel uncomfortable. Oh yeah, this is not, yeah, this is not good. No, this is, this is going to make you feel weird. So um, one of the things that I got to watch, uh, from, both from working with you and seeing you uh, on the ship as the principal scientific officer, is uh, you're really calm under pressure. And I think you are really, you know, I've, I've never really seen you get stressed out. I've seen like, I don't know, on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is like crazy stressed out and one is completely calm. I think for you, I see you hovering between a three and a five, but mm-hmm. kind of, you know, gent- gently, you know, just kind of, and the, and the five is just slightly more energetic. It's not like you're, you're not like stressed. You're just like, so I don't know if you thought about that, but you seem to be, you've got like a reservoir of calm. And I really like, I really like working with calm people. My advisor was super chill. I think I've mentioned that to you before. You know, he's, he's the calmest person I've ever known. He never gets stressed out. He's very, very zen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even when things aren't going as he'd like, he doesn't worry about it at all. Yeah, and I, I've seen, I've kind of noticed you have a similar, like, calm disposition, which which I saw that helps you on the ship, you know, when things, decisions needed to be made quickly, or, you know, big decisions needed to happen, you, you just kind of did it, and you didn't you yeah. know, get stressed out. I mean, I won't say I wasn't ever, I wasn't stressed, I'm, particularly at the start of voyages, and, well, in lots of other circumstances, I certainly get stressed, yeah. um, but I have to say, I've never found... A lot of value in losing your cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. These sorts of things always. I mean, sometimes that can be an issue because I like to step back and, if a problem arises, I like to think, have a think about it, and see, uh, consider other people's motives and what might be causing issues, and you know how my how various decisions I might make might might play out. Yeah. Uh, which can sometimes mean you can snap decisions. Don't always happen as efficiently as you might like, mm. but. Otherwise, I've always found it much more re- much more workable to keep calm. Um, Is it something you had to learn, or have you have you uh, always been? It is, I guess I've always been relatively calm about these things. Although you know, the, I, there is a hole in the door in the bottom, downstairs of my parents' house. It's currently covered by a CD uh, where I punched a hole in it when I can't remember what happened. Something must have really annoyed me, but I smashed my hand right into that door, and I was really surprised when I didn't. I guess I never thought about it too hard, but interior doors are hollow. Uh, yeah, went straight through it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. Was this a, possibly a sibling-related thing? No, or, no, no. No, it wasn't, I, wasn't I, a sibling-related thing? I think it might have been an MS Word-related thing, I think. Oh, that makes sense. No, yeah. you're, totally off the, <laughs> you're totally off the hook. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> it might have been something to do with, I, I think it might have been a document I was working on forever and it died. Yeah. And then the save file was corrupt and then I think I stood up and stepped away from the computer and then punched a hole in the door. Um <laughs> No, no, that makes total sense. I think you're 100% justified. Yeah. When you explained it to your parents, were they like, oh, I get it? Um, I think the bits of door sticking out of my, sticking out of my hand were a bit concerned about. Yeah, okay. No, I didn't know it was. there were bits of door embedded in your hand. So it wasn't a clean, it wasn't a clean punch through the door. It was, yeah, it was a it splintery punch through the door. Oh, okay. But it certainly yeah. took, like, it took my mind right off the word thing. So, in that sense, it worked. Oh, no. It has a nice shiny CD over the hole in the door. Maybe you should pick it up again. You, you <laughs> just start punching things. It worked um, last time. Yeah. So I, I, maybe not calm, but maybe it's a, like more like a pressure vessel with really, really thick walls. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> so you're gonna you're gonna lose it one day. You're gonna like, that's it. Uh, I'm no, I have to. I'm like, kidding. No, I'm kidding. Um, like now, now I'm in char- now I'm discovering the world of of working with toddlers. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I'm becoming trying to become more zen calm. Yes. Like, toddlers can be very frustrating to deal with. Um, but there's absolutely no point in losing your temper. No, that's um, right. So, and you know, it's it's not helping anyone. So I think, yeah, toddlers and research scientists are really they're, they're quite similar in some ways. <laughs> Particularly research scientists on a ship who are pushing their own project. So, um, Emotional management. Yeah. 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 That's one of your jobs as dad and principal scientific officer and, yeah. and group leader. Emotional management, expectation management. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've been quite so lucky in my voyages in that sense that things have mostly gone right. Um, not too many stuff has broken. The ships, ships stayed okay. People have stayed generally healthy. Ice hasn't been terrible. I've had, I've had to make a, a couple of calls, which were sort of tough in the sense that I had to tell uh, one guy who'd come along for the express purposes uh, of getting some moorings out of the ocean and turning them around and putting some new ones back in yeah. uh, that we weren't going to go there um, because the ice was coming in and we were going to get stuck and we needed basically other people's work took priority over messing around in the ice uh, hoping that we were going to get him and get his moorings. And yeah. So having to come and have that conversation with him was pretty hard because that was his whole job and risking these moorings were expensive and things like that. But um, yeah. that's what happens with Antarctic operations. Some Sometimes stuff happens and you have to make decisions around that and that was like my first ones and I'm really happy that he took it calmly and reasonably yeah. um, having someone get up in my face and really aggressive is about their projects because you know passions can be really high about stuff mm. you've put a lot of effort into yeah. um, and having someone tell you no sorry this other person's work's more less risky than yours basically yeah uh, have so you we're had, going to do that have you had that happen has somebody like been really confrontational about it or not not with me not I've, with been, you. I've seen it happen to other people and I've certainly heard about it happening like there's been some fairly yeah, there's, there's certainly some sort of legendary stories going around mm. about people who really flipped out on the ship about stuff that's gone wrong. Uh, or from interpersonal conflicts that, you know, you can have a very close community, but you also can't get away with pe uh, away from people who rub you the wrong way. Um, and I've never had this issue. I haven't had this come up, but I know it's a possibility. Um, and even if they're not uh, actually angry with me, they might be, you might have to manage two people who just turns out they can't stand each other. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's it's... a really good parallel thinking about, and it, I mean, I know you said it kind of half jokingly, but there's some truth to it in that, how do you respond to anger, whether it's coming from your toddler or coming from, you know, a colleague or somebody on the ship, and it, like you said, it doesn't help anybody to reflect it back at them, because then they're going to reflect it back at you again, you make a little positive yeah, a little feedback loop and yeah. things just get worse and worse until they end up somewhere really unfortunate, potentially. Or you can kind of absorb the anger or kind of sidestep it. And that's such a good skill to have. That's such a good emotional skill to have. I'm, I'm better at that than I used to be, and I'm still working on it. I'm still like, that's a skill set I desperately want, is to just be able to, you know, when confronted with anger, to just be able to, like, you know, absorb it or just dissipate it in that way. And to, to like, well, I'm not going to get more angry. I'm not going to, like, reflect that back at you. Um, I mean, that being said, you don't want to like suppress your emotions all the time. So it's more about channeling them into something else or putting them somewhere else or like, you know, uh, cooling off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a good, a good skill set. Yeah. I, actually, now I think about it, I think I'm much happier dealing with the frustrations that, or anger or interpersonal conflicts with people, like ones that like toddlers or angry scientists, than I am with. Computers. <laughs> I find that yeah. they really like a computer that doesn't work, slow internet, or something that's grinding. I, my wife will notice it when I'm sitting there, sitting on my lap, next to her on the couch playing on the laptop, yeah. or something. 
and then it decides not to work or it decides to be really slow for no apparent reason. She was just seeing like veins bulging in my forehead. Because with people, tell, you can tell give, me to put it know. down. Because with people, you can give them the benefit of the doubt, and you can like, all right, I know it's it's tough to be a person and to have emotions and things, and so you're you're dealing with something right now, and let me help you with that. But with a computer, it just should work. Yeah, <laughs> Why isn't this it, just yeah. working? <laughs> yeah. Rage at inanimate objects is much more much more understandable. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so uh, we talked about a few things, uh, a lot of things. We talked about a lot of this stuff. I'm looking at my list now. We talked about a lot of this. Actually, that's a pretty nice um, way to transition into talking about the whole machine learning thing. Because, uh, you know, we, I don't know, we talk about people's paths into science on the podcast, but there's no reason we couldn't also talk about some science bits, right? That's totally on the table. Yeah. Um, so in, in, <laughs> in thinking about how infuriating machines can be, let's talk about how... You're interested in <laughs> spending a lot of time with machine learning and trying to, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be lighthearted about it, but I'm trying to find a way into like, so there's something that's emerging right now where machine learning, all those techniques exist, you know, the techniques have been developed by the engineering community for the past few decades. And it's only been kind of just recently that the oceanographic and climate data sets have gotten big enough that we can apply some of those machine learning techniques to them. So we're kind of in a, night, a nice uh, era right now. We have a nice opportunity to start applying some of those machine learning tools to ocean data, and uh, hopefully getting something out. Hopefully it won't make them. Hopefully it won't make us too mad. Hopefully we won't start, uh, you know, punching our our <laughs> laptops as a result. I, I guess we might. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Do we want to talk about that, or do you have yeah, some interesting? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I have to. I mean, I think my my interest in it really is just recognizing how important it will be for all fields of science ultimately um, but also in, in sort of the excitement in realizing that here's something that is very likely to be the next big thing it already is the next big big thing in several fields yeah. um, like uh, obviously in computer science but things like medical imaging um, uh, and natural speech recognition there's so many areas where machine learning is already revolutionizing you know how we actually do science or and, and produce really useful tools um, and so it's obvious that it has applications in all the other fields of science, but in very few of them, and ours included, it hasn't really been taken up very much. Uh, and that's partly because people don't necessarily recognise that it is the next big thing, um, although I think increasingly they're aware of it. Um, but also because it's not quite suitable in its present form. Yeah. Like So the, the stuff that's really... Like machine learning and the artificial intelligence has been around in, has to be said, largely its present form for probably 20 or 30 years now. Um, mm -hmm. But it's only really since the advent of genuinely huge data sets and really fast computers that you can apply deep neural networks on yeah. that we've had this explosion of you know, very cool um, machine learning applications like uh, AlphaGo, like the, uh, the, the, the Google DeepMind computer that, can, that could suddenly beat the world champion at, at Go, which was supposedly the most complex, you know, fully constrained game out there. It was, it was a problem that they said could never be solved in the next several decades, and then just went and did it. It just uh, happened, yeah. yeah. Image recognition, we do it on our phones all the time. You know, it recognises our face to unlock and that sort of thing. Yeah, that sort of pattern and image recognition was something that computers were really bad at not very long ago. Uh, and then suddenly, using algorithms that already existed, but applying it, those algorithms to really the large uh, ensembles of data, um, so you know, the fact that Google and Facebook and the NSA have been gathering these vast 
um, quantities of, of anonymized inverted commas uh, data, uh, you can suddenly use that to train these wonderful tools on uh, and apply it to very fast machines that can have many, many levels of neural networks um, and suddenly these amazing results pop out. But unfortunately, taking those amazing results and applying it to our field of oceanography isn't just taking someone else's code and, and plugging in oceanography rather than a picture of someone's face. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there is definitely areas where we can do some things like that. Say we wanted to... Like one of the things we look at a lot is sea ice extent, for example. We're interested in identifying icebergs, finding out where the edge of the ice is, uh, which isn't always easy because ice isn't just ice water. There's ice and then there's, as you discovered yeah. on the voyage, there's many, many different sorts of ice. And yeah. as it, as Pancake it forms, ice and slush. And <laughs> grease ice and nihilus and, yeah, yeah. and uh, fractured ice and ridged ice. And there's an awful lot of yeah. ice. Um, and looking at a photo from a satellite isn't always obvious where the edge of the ice is. Um, and so if you want to know if the ice is growing or retreating, which is a big deal, um, you need to be able to look through millions and millions and millions of these images of ice edge and then identify correctly the edge of the ice. Um, and because it isn't a simple, you know, water is black, ice is white sort of thing, you can't easily apply an algorithm. So often people are sitting there looking at photos, applying their own little neural network in their head and clicking the edges. Um, but those are the sorts of problems that uh, machine learning is really good at. The original neural network. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's not a hugely long bow to draw to suggest that you know, humans' brains are work in similar ways. In, yeah. we're, just, we're really good at pattern, pattern recognition, and that's essentially what these things are, they're pattern recognition. Yeah. What would you... This is something I've been trying to think about as well, because you know, all the machine learning techniques are very much about you, you don't give the algorithm too much information beforehand necessarily. You kind of, you give it a lot of data, but mm -hmm. you don't necessarily tell it, okay, mass is conserved and energy is conserved. We don't tend to give it the physics necessarily, yeah. like in that sense. And often and, having physics, you know, come back out the other end, along with some new interesting relationships is a good indication yeah. that it's working, right? So I guess one uh, attitude I've encountered a little bit in talking with some scientists about applying machine learning to oceanography is they kind of say, well, so what? I can write down a simple kind of energy balance model and get physical intuition that way. So why why should I worry about this other orthogonal approach? It's better to just use a box model. And I'm not saying that's my position, but it's one of the positions I've encountered. And I don't have a I don't have a great reply yet because mm. I guess my first thought is it's supposed to be the whole machine learning thing is supposed to be kind of orthogonal to that approach of you know, starting with the physics and deriving things directly from the physics, which I'm a big fan of. That's awesome. That's you know most of what I'm doing, and and uh, uh, so it's just about having an additional set of tools in your toolbox for me. I don't know. Do you have, you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I I completely agree with them. You you want that physical understanding, uh, but at the same time, when you're dealing with these like dynamic chaotic systems. Yeah. You need perfect physical understanding, which is impossible to get to yeah. make perfect prediction. Uh, and also, just having the, just understanding how the you know the fundamentals of physics work doesn't necessarily tell you what those emergent structures are going to be when you take a whole bunch of those you know basic physical parameters, put them in a, in a grid, and then tell them to start passing water between them. You don't necessarily see how you know a gyre will evolve or eddies will evolve, or these structures will emerge. Um, and you certainly those codes certainly don't tell you how those large-scale emergent things interact with one another. And those sort of patterns is, um, I mean, that's what we spend a lot of our time doing, right, is trying to understand how 
this very, very dynamic, complex system, coupled system. So when we look at climate models, we're talking about the ocean is talking to the sea ice, is talking to the land ice, is talking to the atmosphere, is talking to the biosphere, is talking to all the chemical um, reactions going on. Yeah. Uh, and that is mind-numbingly complex. Like in theory, in each of these fields, we have a good, pretty good physical understanding of the very basic stuff, how this works. We know how light is, uh, air absorbs light. We know how it's re-emitted. Uh, uh, re we know that... Uh, um, absorption spectrums and things like that and all of that is happening on every scale every spatial scale down That's to the right. tiniest spatial scale and, to the uh, largest and the, ones and the truth so is that... we can't always model it we can't model everything we can't yeah. model every single atom uh, so we start making approximations and we can make the and and then we hope those approximations produce that emergent structure uh, and what machine learning can do is say well hey you don't need to model every single atom we can detect what this emergent structure is uh, and we can look at the relationships. So basically, we can see these patterns coming out, um, and we can link those patterns to, uh, well, you know, link those patterns to properties within the model. For example, um, you can look at relationships you didn't necessarily see covariances or causal covariances that aren't immediately obvious, and certainly isn't obvious from just looking at the fundamental like fluid dynamical equations. Um, I don't, I don't want to say science is post post-analytic understanding, but no, we're, no. we're looking at no. increasingly complex systems in so many of our fields and just trying to understand how elements of those interact with other elements. So you push here in the ocean, we change the winds around Antarctica, so that's going to have huge knock-on effects all over the world, um, and the equations don't tell you what they will be. Um, you need to, basically, you need to run a model and see. Yeah. Um, but you don't see it. When you look at a model, even though you've got perfect understanding of what the model's showing, you're not necessarily looking everywhere. You can try and correlate every single metric with every other single metric to see if there's some that seem to line up. Hmm. Or you can use these machine learning approaches that look at patterns that come out and they start sort of highlighting where you might want to look for more physical understanding. Um, so I think they're really potentially amazingly useful tools for um, analysing these models. Yeah. Have you encountered... Earlier, you mentioned that professor who was like, ah, computers, big uh, fad. Have you encountered much of that attitude in talking about machine learning? Um, uh, jovially, yes. Jovially. Everyone you okay. okay. mentioned is saying, oh, no, it's just going gonna, gonna, to, you either want to automate our own jobs or um, or you're looking at things that are far too simple to, yeah. You know, if anything you can describe using this is, is trivial, hmm. um, which is not the case. But I think most people just say that because they, it's, machine learning is definitely a buzzword. Um, hmm. And machine learning or artificial intelligence or these sorts of things can be applied meaningfully to algorithms we already use every day, like yeah. you know, EOFs, uh, very, very simple way of, you know, um, or these yeah, sort of uh, work that... Empirical you, orthogonal functions, you know, the statistical tool, yeah. Uh, singular value decompositions, basically. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the work that you and I recently did with a, uh, with a very uh, smart summer student was basically taking... A whole bunch of Gaussian profiles, curves, and using letting and trying to approximate a more complex curve with a whole bunch of those those stacked on top of each other. That's people would wouldn't immediately say that's machine learning. That's you know that's something that's a t technique that's been around for a very long time. Yeah, but it's linear algebra and statistics. Yeah, and but <laughs> basically, machine the machine learning element that came out of that was we were letting the machine decide how basically best to produce those in the, in the most efficient way. Um, so it can be easy for people to be overwhelmed by the buzzwords mm. um, without necessarily being aware of the, the potential that it holds. I remember um, seeing a talk, I think it was EGU, 
where uh, it doesn't matter uh, where this person was present this scientist presented uh, they were classifying I think they were looking at wave uh, images using uh, satellites mm -hmm. and somebody in the audience asked at the end said have you ever thought about using machine learning to do this and the the, the speaker's response was like well I don't know by the time you teach a machine how to do this you could you could just do it yourself and I remember that answer it just kind of it wasn't very satisfying, right? It kind of hit the room, and you kind of felt this like, <laughs> it didn't really. People didn't really yeah. react to it because I think there was a, a sense of like, ah, that's probably not the direction things are going to go, and <laughs> like that. Yeah. You you could try to do everything manually still, and there might still be cases where that is the best approach, but that's certainly not the direction everything's going. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's I mean machine learning. A lot of, so I gave some examples with the CIS of where machine learning could be applied to our field, but there's other. It's not immediately obvious how it could be applied to uh, a lot of the understanding the dynamics that we do. Right? Yeah. Um, there's not any sort of off-the-shelf algorithms that are already working really nicely in other fields. We can just plug into our models and, and get wonderful science out of. So there needs to be some real work done in in sort of combining the existing. Uh, machine learning tools and this is, has to be done with the researchers who are really computer scientists and understand that sort of data analytics um, in collaboration with oceanographers and geophysicists to build new tools that are appropriate for applying to our very large models which are increasingly you know data intense they're, they're gigantic they're petabytes and petabytes of information and to suggest that it's we're going to, be able to sit too. through that by hand and understand these incredibly complex systems by hand is <laughs> is and it's just going to get worse yeah it's going to get worse yeah so really really we need machine learning as a tool and other other tools to facilitate our understanding of these models we're making them so complex that we've basically we are essentially building new earths and the only benefit you have is these ones are easier to look at yeah you can observe every yeah. point yeah every you can time. observe every point every time but they're mm. still outstandingly complex and, and we don't understand why they do what they do all the time despite the fact that we explicitly told them exactly yeah. how to do it <laughs> yeah um, but it's like you said the emergent you put all of the physics and the chemistry and the biology all together and they start interacting on every scale and some you know crazy stuff that you might not have predicted emerges from that you know, right. combination. Yeah, it is the complexity of so they are genuinely chaotic yeah. beasts. It's kind of like we know a lot about atoms, but knowing everything about atoms wouldn't tell you about like oh yeah, there's this guy Beethoven who's going to exist and he's going to write a symphony and it's going to sound like this. Like you wouldn't necessarily predict. Exactly. Yeah, and I think there's many fields <laughs> like that um, that that have become so complex and so dynamical that we need to start applying some of these other tools um, and start becoming slightly more comfy with the idea that we don't necessarily always understand how the answers are arrived at when you apply an algorithm. Yeah, that makes me think of Isaac Held's idea uh, about the hierarchical modeling idea. You know, he's a big fan, and, and I am too, of this approach where you, you start with the simplest model you can think of. You know, you write something down with just pencil and paper to try to capture the very basic elements of the system you're working with. And then you see what happens when you add layers of complexity. Mm -hmm. And so machine learning, I kind of think, can be part of that hierarchy, at least in terms of how you analyze those differences and you analyze what happens you know, when you add and take away different sources of complexity. It's orthogonal. I keep using that word, but yeah, it's yeah, kind of... It's, it's a different approach, and it should by no means replace what we're currently doing. And it shouldn't replace going out and making physical observations of the real world. But yeah. It can be a real tool... Uh, and because it is such an unexplored space, I think there's a lot of really exciting science to do. And 
you know, it should be any, every scientist's great dream, right, is to suddenly have a new space in their field open up that no one else is in and, you know, having the opportunity to go and do that. Um, and then a gold rush occurs yeah, and everyone happened. rushes. I mean, got, <laughs> yeah, but that does benefit people. If there's, there's actually genuinely stuff to be yeah. learnt here, um, then that's great for everyone, right? Yeah, absolutely. It is, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I like to talk about um, creativity a little bit and, uh, like, how do you approach that? Because I think that's an aspect of science that maybe isn't obvious from the outside, right? Because we, we kind of, there's a reputation that scientists are uh, very you know, analytical, very data-driven, and all that is true, but in the face of all of that data, you have to have some creative impulse or some creative sense of how to, how to approach that. Like you have to have some intuition of but like, do, oh, well, this might be interesting. We do make things, we do produce something, we produce new knowledge and yeah. new understanding, and that is essentially the act of creating. Yeah, something. definitely. And ideally it's just going to be plugged into the, our global consciousness of knowledge and the boundaries of what people know about the universe we live in gets pushed back very slightly, and it's a creative yeah. act doing that. Definitely. How do you, what do you do like for yourself to kind of keep that you know, alive, <laughs> that creativity? What do you do for your well, like, inspiration you, and things? That's hard. How, what, what inspires you? I think it's really the desire to know. Like When I was a kid, I was yeah. always asking why, right? and I think this is a characteristic of many scientists. It's always asking why and wanting to know stuff. I wanted yeah. to be the one who knew stuff. Yeah. And so when we, you know, in our weekly library visit to the, in the school library, I was, I was always having to be dragged out of the non-fiction section because I was getting books out of there. <laughs> and it was books about planes and and uh, history and how stuff works yeah. and that sort of thing because I always wanted to know yeah. um, and so really it's it's quite privileged to be the first person to know the stuff it might be very esoteric it might be you know, the warming of the upper circumpolar deep well, the, the upper circumpolar deep water <laughs> in these particular areas in the southern ocean that's is right. warming but I'm still the first one to know yeah, yeah. That's, um, that's right there's such a feeling with, I want to say something to kind of to kind of plug into that and relate to that and that um, so I did this math master's degree and as part of that work, I produced a couple of new proofs. Nobody's ever going to care about those proofs. It's not like relevant to anything really, right? But I, I felt it was it was cool to have that feeling of like, oh, I made this. I made these proofs that nobody's done before. Nobody's looked at this particular system in this particular way and have, has arrived at that new bit of knowledge. You know, it's nothing's going to come of it. <laughs> it's just, but it, it's cool. Um, yeah. So I think having just that curiosity. And there's something other, like Lynn, Lynn Talley was talking about that as well last week, about having that basic curiosity. Mm. Never stop asking questions. Like, just let yourself ask those questions and let yourself keep wondering, you know, why things work the way they do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, asking questions. And so that's something I quite enjoy doing when I go on a voyage. Because, you know, as principal scientific officer, particularly on a multidisciplinary voyage, there's a lot of people doing stuff that you have very little knowledge about. I'm not a, I'm not a biogeochemist. I don't know a lot about how... Chemistry. Like the last time I did proper, you know, dunking various chemicals into one another and burning, setting things on fire, was back in year twelve when I was sixteen. Yeah. Um, so I like to go into the into the labs where they're working and just ask them what they're doing and, and see how they do it and and find out more about their area of science that you know, normally I'm trying to facilitate happening as, as the PSO, but I know very little about. Yeah. So it's yeah, I'm just curious. There's a balance to be struck there, right? Because you've got um, curiosity but you also have practical kind of life and funding demands yeah. and I think it's probably scary how easy it is 
to let all of those life demands and the kind of funding pressures and administrative stuff like we were talking about, it's kind of scary how easy it could be for all of that to take over and for you to not give yourself enough space to be creative yeah, and definitely. enough room to be creative. I, mean, I have to admit, some of my motivation in going and asking what they're doing is, is trying to find out if they have some horrendous chemical that's going to blow a hole in the side of the ship. Um, but, yeah, you're right. As you, Particularly as you become more senior in the field and it will give you more responsibilities in logistics and organising and supervising, then, yeah, you can feel some of that wonder getting crushed all the time that you would have otherwise taken to mm. just say, hey, I wonder if this... You know, I wonder if this is a, worth looking at and then the time you might have spent just messing around in, in MATLAB or Python exploring some data, you tend not to do that as much because yeah. you realise that as well as running these things, you need to produce your science and that means doing papers that are going to be you know, payoff papers mm. that you know is research that needs to be done is interesting and you have the story there rather than maybe just saying, oh, this is an interesting little blip, maybe I should explore that some more. So that does tend to suffer. On the other hand, um, that's where the ideas for, for PhDs come from, right? So you can you can have students do that. You can say, hey, I, there's this really interesting piece of data. I haven't had time to explore it. Here's a concept I think is, is interesting and has legs, but you know, I don't have time to do it. Yeah. Um, and so it was something I stressed about a lot when I was a PhD student is that I didn't have those ideas. Hmm. Uh, and that was simply a function of me not being really familiar with the space. Yeah. And I, I yeah. worried yeah. that there was maybe something wrong with me as a scientist that I wasn't coming up with these crazy ideas that needed exploring and hmm. was leading to great research. And now I find I have so many of those, I mean, they're not necessarily great ideas, but they're all these inklings of ideas that should be pursued and pursued or could be pursued in some way uh, that I don't have time to chase them all. Um, yeah. And that's just, I think, you're just part of maturing as a scientist. I think it's really valuable to put that out there. I think that's a super common experience. Oh, yeah. That yeah. You, you, you don't have a ton of ideas when you first start out precisely because you're not plugged into that world yet and you don't know uh, the landscape. <laughs> but once you start to get a feel of the landscape, you can start to see, well, it might nice, look nice if I build a shed over there or if I build a castle over there, you know, and if I plant some trees along this direction. You start to get a feel for that, but when you just show up, you know you've get, you've kind of jumped out of a plane and landed in the the landscape of academia. You don't know, oh well, why is that cactus there, and why is this, you know, why have, why have things been planted the way that they've already been planted? And uh, I don't know what the plants are in my tortured metaphor, but I think you know, you think you know what I'm trying to get at <laughs> with that sense yeah. of yeah. But but yeah, create. I think yeah, creativity is the essence of. Oh what we do yeah and i think scientists i mean scientists it's it's a bad rep that we have it's not necessarily true i mean i know you that you play bass for example uh or guitar bass both yeah bass, yeah, yeah. so you, you get twice as great and you draw yeah i used to i certainly as a kid i drew spent all my time drawing um you know maybe the scientific side of it was that i wanted to draw things that were real i wasn't a very abstract artist mm. um but i really enjoyed drawing um and I sang a lot as well. Uh, play, I, I played music uh, when I was younger, and even during, during my PhD, my time in Hobart, I sang as part of a barbershop choir and quartet. Um, and okay. I guess that's some of, some of that creativity has had to take a sidestep now that things are more busy, so I don't sing anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, not, not to public. Um, <laughs> and I don't get to draw or paint nearly as much as I'd like. Mm. Um, but, you know, I still get to come to work and do something creative. So I, I guess we should be happy that this happens to everyone, right? You have families yeah. and things. But we still have a job where we're allowed to be creative and have that freedom to, you know, s yeah. to some extent set our own projects. Yeah, that is a privilege, right? 
You, you got any recordings of this barbershop quartet? Uh, yeah, <laughs> actually, if you, uh, you if you if you carefully Google Deep South, oh, um, yeah, you'll see us uh, in YouTube. Yeah. Doing, um, oh, I'm trying to remember what was probably the Australian convent, the barbershop convention. Barbershops are weird really? form of singing in this in that it's actually competitive, and you have like these uh, really amazingly. I'm always impressed at the judges how precisely they can rank. You have three or four judges listening to a song and they give you a score out of 100 on various technical and uh, artistic elements. And they always nail it with each other to within one or two points out of 100. Really? Yeah. And, you know, at, at, a, at a competitive level, you can get scores somewhere between 70 and you know, 95 or something, depending yeah. on how good people So are. there's a very specific scoring system that... Yeah, <laughs> and I have no idea how they do it. I'm really, I'm, like, I, I sang because I enjoyed it, not because I was good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was a really, really nice social atmosphere. I mean, that's where Barbershop came from, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was men singing in barbershops in a men's space. You know, I'm embarrassed to admit I've literally never thought of that, despite the name is Barbershop Quartet. Yeah. It just isn't a thought that... <laughs> Uh, that's funny. And, and I hasten to add that barbershop isn't inherently sexist. Uh, it's the it's the matter of blending voices, so that four voices sound like one person singing five notes. And you can do that with women as well, but having a man's voice or a woman's woman's voice mixed in with a group uh, sort of messes with that tone. So you need to have ideally people who sound as similar as possible to one another mm, in, yeah. the, in, the, in the timbre of their voice. Because it should almost, I guess, I guess what you're saying is it should sound like you're playing on one instrument. You're playing different notes on one instrument, yeah. right? You know, yeah, that they have a yeah similar timbre. Well, that was fun. This was fun. Do, you, do you, anything else you want to talk about? Um, no, this was very free ranging. This was fun. I had no idea what to expect. And, yeah. It was nice to talk. Ah, I'm and, glad. Yeah, I have to look into my alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> I have to do something about a bottle of vodka on my desk. There's some numbers you can call. Yeah. <laughs> some. Well, the, the UK has very good support for that, I, I think. So yeah, we can get you to the NHS. And uh, um, yeah, I'm it, glad the seething rage I feel inside isn't really becoming apparent just yet. <laughs> You're hiding it so well. Yeah. It's just right, yeah. right under the surface. If is. you look in his eyes, yeah. he's just right. <laughs> I'm starting to see it, just a little bit. Um, but. I literally don't know what your buttons are, so I wouldn't know what buttons to push. And that's a good thing. Like, so don't, you know, <laughs> in terms of making you mad. Uh, I wouldn't want to find out. Wouldn't want to find out. I, I get it all out in the football field. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you, do you play a lot? Do you do that a lot still? Um, so I used to play underwater hockey in Hobart really competitively. So that was, was my highest sporting achievement back when I was 21. And I, you know, I didn't realize it then, but I, I peaked. When I was <laughs> yeah. Uh, I played for Australia. Um, in underwater hockey. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we won. Oh, like, like um, so underwater hockey, played for Australia. So that sounds like it's on a national, or what? what is, national yeah. level? Or? Um, yeah, so it was, it was, again, it was, a matter, it, it sounded better than it actually was. Um, underwater hockey is a niche sport, okay, as you yeah. might guess from the name. Um, but for no apparent reason, it was big in Hobart. I, mm. I don't know how it happened. It was like an accident of geography and people, but it was, it was a big sport there. Um, and... There was a Tri-Nations competition between Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, and it was hosted in Hobart. And it's not a professional sport, so it was much, much easier to make the squad if you happened to live in Hobart already. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a... It's a niche sport, so if you're in and you have some skill, you yeah, can, you you can happen, go far. You, you happen can... to live there, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I got to play for Australia. That was cool. Um, but yeah, it's all been downhill since then. It's just very casual, very um, 
I never really played cricket or Australian football in Australia, uh, mostly because people there are too good at those sports. Um, but since coming to the UK, there's a very nice casual uh, level of cricket and a nice casual level of Australian football, which I do here just to, you know, hang on to my roots. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks, Andrew. Well, thanks a lot, Dan. It's been yeah. really enjoyable. Ah, I'm glad. Cool. There you have it. My conversation with Andrew Myers. I hope you enjoyed that. I wanted to finish this story about uh, Trevor McDougall and uh, him threatening to castrate me. So the, where that story ended up, it's kind of anticlimactic. So uh, I just published a correction, basically. <laughs> it took me all of, you know, 10 minutes to remake the figure using the combination of stream function and density that Trevor suggested. And uh, I just sent it off to the journal and they said, okay, fine, they replaced the figure. So now when you download this paper on Modewater from 2016 of ours, it's got the correct figure. Maybe that's an unnecessary detail for a podcast, but I just kind of wanted to tell you that we've resolved the situation. That's all fixed. I also um, wanted to say that on the last podcast, I mispronounced uh, Nancy Bumpy's last name. Sorry about that, Nancy. Um, I had never heard anybody say her last name before, and I realized it when I listened to her podcast, her uh, third pod from the sun, part of the AGU series of podcasts. But uh, if you haven't heard that, give that a listen. Well worth your time. Short, focused, good science conversations. So, uh, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed this, and uh, yeah. There you go. See you later. <laughs>